Hello and welcome to the Spectator Books podcast. I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of The Spectator, and this week I'm very pleased to be joined by Kit DeWall, who has previously appeared on this podcast when her excellent first novel, My Name is Leon, was shortlisted for the Desmond Elliott Prize, but she's here now as an editor. Her new book is Common People, an anthology of working class writers. Kit, welcome. That title from the pulp song. Did yes. you did you take that as a kind of you know, it's got a sort of pugnacious quality that pulp It song. has. Yeah. And I think you know the way people try and reclaim words that, you know, have previously been used as a term of derision. We just thought, well, we'll have that and we'll take that and we'll be proud to be common people. I'm actually too old to have been in the blur pulp era so I don't remember that song the song I remember as common people was some years before with uh what's his name anyway an old guy obviously so yeah we I I didn't reference that song at all everyone else does but I'm just slightly too old to remember it it's an accidental but felicitous uh what was the kind of genesis of this book I mean what made you think a you know we need this book and b you know what what form it should take so I felt we needed the book because of when I first came into publishing which is only three or four years ago now I was surprised that there weren't more working class writers or very obviously more working class writers now whenever we have this conversation in fact I think it was Ian Rankin put something on uh, Twitter about that there's loads and loads of loads of working class writers but they're writing genre fiction they're writing crime They're writing romance, they're writing on the fringes, they might be writing graphic novels, for example. But if you're talking about commercial fiction and literary fiction, there's a definite absence of working class writers. So I wanted, because I know, because I'm working class, I really wanted to find a vehicle to showcase what working class writers were out there. And also to give other working class writers like myself an opportunity to be heard, to have their voices out there, unpublished writers, that was. And at first, I was going to set up a working-class writers' prize. We were going to call it the George Orwell Prize. Obviously, we can't do that. And anyway, he wasn't working-class. Yeah, he was an older child. Absolutely. <laughs> so um, we sort of shelved that pretty quickly and then came up with this idea, borrowing from Nikesh Shukla's Good Immigrants. Yeah, was that a model for this? Absolutely. It was the, it was the model for what we decided to do, although I think most of his are published writers. Then we had to go about finding 16 published writers who were working class and 16 unpublished writers that were working class. Yeah, was that how you designed? Because there are some fairly big names in here. I mean, Lisa Makinani and Louise Doughty and um, there's also also Stuart McConey, Mallory Blackman. You've got, I mean, yeah, there were a number of very big names. And I was like... Did you simply invite submissions? Think, oh gosh, lots of no, no. no I basically rang my friends way. and you know said to them, "You will be in this for no money whatsoever." I think, in fact, it's not true. Not for it, no money. Everybody in the anthology got two hundred and fifty pounds, the same whether you're published or unpublished. And everyone was absolutely behind it from day one. The published writers were so enthusiastic about it, and basically they're lending their name to get. Did you want the published ones to help? get it publicity or as an to to show people that you can be working class and get published what was the absolute so it was both it was both to say did you know this writer was working class for example Damien Barr said to me because I was talking to him to try and get Caitlin Moran's phone number yeah so I could ask her and he said but you haven't asked me I was like Damien you can't be working class you're so posh you do this salon in the Savoy 
And he said, I'm working class. And, and you, you know, didn't read his memoir. <laughs> absolutely. So it was great to have him on board and everyone else I asked. They were So I wanted to both get their name to help to sell the book as well as to say, look at these people that you may not have realised were working class, and this is their background. And getting the unpublished writers, how did you did you just put a kind of general call out for send me your stuff? So used the Arts Council funded writer development agencies. There's five, six, I think, in the UK, and I contacted them because they have very good networks into communities that perhaps you know other big publishers don't. And I said, can you have a competition to give five, five, three working class writers? They were inundated, all of them. I don't think they realised what they'd let themselves in for, but I knew what would happen. So they... It's like uh, running a poetry competition. It's absolutely. Very, <laughs> it's a very dangerous, dangerous thing. thing. So they ended up supplying me with the, with the names of the writers. I had a choice then of the writers. They, I think they gave me maybe three or four. I had to choose two from each area. And, um, yeah, that was it. We, we had our 34 after that point. And they're all memoir. Why did you do that? Um, I mean, given be, that you're talking about literary fiction. Absolutely. You've asked for memoir instead yes. of fiction. Why is that? Well, two reasons. Firstly, if we asked, just, just said, look, you're working class writers, can you send us a story? We would have had everything in there. We would have had science fiction, romance, crime, would have had literary fiction. We might have had some, you know existential poetry we would have had everything and I just thought the anthology would have looked quite messy it wouldn't have had a a theme for example but I also wanted it to showcase working class lives what they're really like as opposed to what people think they're like they're not all tower blocks in Doncaster with syringes in the in the stairwells for example you know there's some hilarious stories in there Neither did I want it to be pure misery, and I wanted to yeah, show... Yeah, do you worry a bit, you know, we're going to get four Yorkshiremen sketch coming through our door? Absolutely. How poor were you? I was poorer. And in fact, I had an interview with Tim Adams from The Observer recently, and we sat down and immediately started comparing our poverty stories. So I remember reading that and saying exactly. you were both slightly guilty about we being were. in a posh restaurant. Absolutely. And it was... It was really funny. You do tend to do that when you meet someone from a similar background. You know, did you have tin peaches? Well, if you didn't, you weren't really poor. You know, that kind of thing. So, and it isn't that. You know, the anthology isn't that. It's really some desperate stories in there. There's no doubt about that. And some hard stories. But there is also humour. And I definitely wanted it to be an anthology that wasn't apologising for being working class. It wasn't saying well, you know, we're looking for a route out through social mobility and we actually have always wanted to go skiing. You know, it's not that. We're we're not ashamed. Nobody in that anthology is ashamed of being working class. We're proud to be working class, but it doesn't mean to say it doesn't have its challenges and and it's not an easy life. Do you see it as being a kind of, some might say, this is ghettoising in a way. It's a sort of self-ghettoising thing. Did you worry about that? Not at all. No, not at all. I can I can understand why someone might say that. And I've had lots of people contact me and say, we shouldn't be talking about class. You know, we're beyond class. We should be... The more we talk about it, the more we make it a reality. Well, actually, if you're working class, it, it's absolutely a reality. You can, you can pretend it doesn't exist, but it definitely does, and it has an impact on your life. And I think the book, If You're Working Class, is... A fabulous thing it's, it's saying look here's my story you can do you can be a writer and come from a brothel 
you know, one of the women in that was brought up in a brothel. So for me, it's much more of a showcase than ghettoising. It's much more of a here we are standing proud doing this thing. Did it did it surprise you? Were there things that did you did you end up with a different sense of what you might call working class? Yeah. From at the end of the book than you did at the beginning. I think what I saw was just the, the diversity of working class lives. So obviously myself I when I was growing up I wouldn't have said I was working class I would have said I was underclass certainly the working class people on my on the road I grew up in were posh to me you know they were they sat down and had proper meals and they had a car and they you know they were just I know now they were working class would you have self-identified as underclass you'd have said I would have definitely said I was I was underclass yeah I was definitely or at the bottom if you like because both of my parents did work but I was definitely on the bottom rung of being working class I had friends that were working class who whose both parents worked at the British Leyland factory as was then and oh my god I thought she was so posh you know they went on holiday they did things that were a, a real surprise to me that working class people did so what I saw and what I found with the book is that that there was that complete range from definite underclass definite subclass uh, lives for example Adam Sharp in the book whose parents were both heroin addicts you know that you would say was right at the bottom of being working class to Chris McCrudden's story in there who you know they're the respectable working class you know they they would have neck curtains and they would have trifle is that the one about the guy who's caught between the two grandmothers yes yes yeah yeah. yeah, perfectly well I think it's in that story it's in one of the stories it's called pieces that's close to it where it talks about saying, and it's not just a question of working class access to writing, but to, rep, you know, how, how the working class is represented in fiction. He says, you know, it's very often monolithic yes. in fiction. There's a kind of single idea of what working yes. class is, and only from within it can you see the... The nuance. Yeah. Absolutely. And I think what people think when they think about the working class is somehow it always happens up north. You know, it's northern. You're going to have a Manchester accent if you're if you're working class. It's still associated with manual labour, for example. It's still associated with, certainly for my age group, with being a miner or some, you know, trades that have actually disappeared largely. The new working class have got different jobs. And I do think... I think somebody says that they, you know, it used to be a thing that you made stuff and now absolutely. you serve. Now you serve, absolutely. Or, or you sell stuff in a call centre. But it isn't manufacturing now because the manufacturing industry has, has largely disappeared. So there are, you know, the employment profile of people in working class is very, very different to what it, it was. And how, how much does this, this anthology kind of cover that shift? Because obviously working class, as you say, is, it's, it's changed yes. drastically in the last 50, 60 years. Yes, absolutely. I think have it does cover... Mix? I think perhaps we haven't got as much at the top, that very blurred line between the lower middle class and the upper working class. I think maybe if there's another volume, please God, we can explore that blurred line. I mean, explored some of the, the very blurred lines between what it is, the sort of aspirational working class, if you like, that would just do anything to move around the corner to be in a semi-detached rather than a terraced house. Now, at the end, you talk about the the last essay of the book. I think it's called David Bryan, is that right? Yes, does a sort of like here are the stats type yes. essay saying that publishing is much more... It's much worse. Yeah. yeah. 
yeah, than, than most other areas of, certainly in the arts, publishing is one of the worst for excluding working class people in both what's published and in the makeup of the staff and, and the people that work in publishing, which obviously feeds into what gets published. So until uh, the makeup of the staff in publishing, people that work in publishing, until that changes, I don't think we will see a change in who gets published. Do you think that's that's shifted over the years? I mean, I'm trying to think, you know, because we, you know, the 50s and 60s, there was that kind of wave of grammar school kids coming yes. through. There was sort of Alan Silito and David Lodge and yes. you know, John Osborne and people like that, you know, that actually suddenly people were going, look, we're seeing this. Absolutely. Has that shifted back? I mean, I know again in the 90s and yeah. early noughties, you got a lot of very modish in publishing was the experience of sort of immigrant and diaspora yes. writing and, you know, first generation, second generation, mixed race. Yes. You know, immigrant working class stories were coming out. I mean, has that not been a constant progress? Do you think the pendulum swung back? I think the pendulum has swung back. And I think it's mostly because... When people, there is a niche for working class writing and it might be uh, black, you know, we're going to publish black writers or here's our black writer or here's our, here is our angry young man or our Brett Easton Ellis type profile. Yeah. I don't think Brett was very working class. No, <laughs> but, but do you know what I mean? That sort of gritty, hard writing. And I think there is a, if you like, there's a, a slot in lots of publishers list and, and there it is. There's our, our one book that will fulfil that criteria. I also think as austerity has bitten, there's been less opportunities for working class writers to get published just because most of it happens in London. So if you're not from London, I'll give you a great example. When I first got published, she wasn't my agent then, she was going to be my agent, but she rang and she said, can I see you on Wednesday at three o'clock? And I was like, great, absolutely. Now, I can afford to go down to London at the drop of a hat and the train fare wasn't a problem. But for a lot of people, that would be very, very expensive. You know, £100 ticket to go down to London and then, and can you come back? And come, can you come and meet your editor? And even if you're not published, lots and lots of literary events that inspire you or might get your contacts or might improve your network all happen in London. And if you're not from London, that's a massive, massive barrier to you getting on and getting published and becoming part of the scene. So the very London-centric nature of publishing excludes lots of working-class people from the industry, but certainly for employment as well as getting published. And your, your own experience, I mean, your contribution to the book is you write about food. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Massive theme. And you're not the only one, actually. No, you? no, no. Food is a, is a very significant theme because it's very important, obviously, if you're working class. It's, it's one of the measurements, if you like, of how wealthy your family is feeling if you're working class. And if poverty strikes, it's one of the first things that goes or changes. And so we would definitely know, we could take the temperature of how wealthy we were by what we were given to eat. My mother worked in a factory, Smith's Crisps. You probably don't remember them. I remember them very well. I do. And yeah. they had a little bag salt of salt, yeah. yeah, which we thought was massively exciting. So she used to bring home crisps, which had been crushed. So it was dust, basically, in the bag because they were flat. And she would bring them home. And we sometimes that was our dinner. You know, that's that's what we ate because there was so little money. And any time you get working class people all sitting around, we compare bad dinners <laughs> <laughs> what 
was your experience of going into publishing? What, did you feel your working classness constantly? Because one of the another of the themes, at least in some of them, I mean, I know it's very strong in Kathy Rensenbrook's story, for instance. That idea, you go, people like me don't write books. In fact, yeah. I think there are two of the stories have someone saying that. I was interested in doing something bookish and a career as advisor wouldn't say you can be a writer, they'd say you can be a teacher. Yes, yeah. I had exactly the same experience at school when I was 16. I went to a grammar school and I was a very clever child and my best friend wasn't as clever. She was the first person to admit that. And we both went in to see our careers teacher and um, she, the careers teacher, I said I wanted to be an English teacher because I, I loved English, I loved reading. And she said, oh, no, 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 go to secretarial college. And I just thought, fair enough, that's, she's probably exactly right. And she said to my friend that she should be a teacher. She said, you know, you should be the teacher because she was posher than me. I think that was partly to do with racism, no doubt, and partly to do with just her perception of, of what I was allowed to do. I never, I had a very strange mother who instilled in all of her children massive amounts of self-belief you know she just told us we were beautiful and clever every single day till we got to about 14 and got gobby and (laughs) then she changed her mind so she brought us up to have a lot of confidence and I have never really suffered from a lack of confidence when I went into publishing I never looked around and thought oh god I shouldn't be here never 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 I did look and think it wouldn't be as easy for other people to be there because it is intimidating. The first time I went to Penguin's offices, which you might know on the Strand, you know, it's like, wow, I'm in the middle of London, I'm in this fabulous Art Deco building, and it could be intimidating. It wasn't intimidating for me, but I can well understand that if you very rarely come down to London, or if ever, you, you never come down to London, and then you're going to go, maybe you've got an internship, maybe you've got some work experience, you might think, I'm not going to fit in here, and my Newcastle accent isn't going to go down well here. You know, you could, I could easily imagine being intimidated by that. And apart from publishing an anthology like this, how do you think we change that? I mean, what's the... It's that old kind of, you know, double-bind thing. Yeah. As do you want to be proud of the working class and being working class and that or you know should we be all be classless should we be safely mobile I mean how do you think I don't know about all all of us being classless I don't think that's the answer it's it's really about making room for everybody you know remaining working class but being able to write literary fiction the the expectation of course when you're a working class writer and you go and see a publisher or, or you talk about what you're writing They never expect you to be writing about Marie Antoinette, for example. That's for someone else to write. But you can write the story about uh, the single parent on benefits in Crewe, for example. But royalty and certain other subjects, they are not for the the working class to write about. Well, your first novel was quite like that. You know, it was about a foster child. It was, you know... Absolutely. Was there a different novel you'd rather have written? There were two other novels I did write. Yeah, and they were neither of them was about Marion Swanette, by the way. Uh, one was about a Norwegian gangster, and the other one was about a moneylender. But, I mean, they were, they were gritty crime novels. Yeah. Uh, you know, I was not writing the literary novel or the historical fiction at all. But true equality for working-class writers is when they can write the historical novel or they can write something that you don't necessarily associate with people from the underclasses or from the working classes. It's it's as though there is a niche for working class writers. And 
basically that is regurgitating your story well, Louise, over and over. Louise Doughty, actually, who I think, you know, she writes in this, saying that everybody thought, because I lived in North London... Yes. ...and, you know, married yes. to produce a front row on posh. Absolutely. And there is that... She, she hasn't written those gritty sort no. of stories, has she? No, she's... I mean, she writes the most incredible psychological drama, but most of the people in those dramas aren't working-class people. You know, she she writes what she wants to write, and she's been massively successful in doing that. And I think when we have more writers able to write about whatever they want and be accepted, that they can write whatever they want, we'll have equality, uh, class equality at the very least. But coming back to your question about what needs to change... I think we need to change the makeup of the people making the decisions about what gets published so that people can identify and welcome and, and be welcoming to working class writers and to all sorts of different stories. Don't get me wrong, we have to have quality. You know, quality will is what the book industry is about. You you can't publish a good book. Well, let me just rephrase that. I was going to say you can't publish a bad book and sell it. You can. Yes, you, you can. can. Oh, yes. <laughs> so, yeah, true equality is when we have people recognising the talents and the diversity within working class and allowing working class people to write about whatever they want, not just their own story. And do you think that, that means you need working class people in publishing itself? I mean, that they'll be better equipped... They'll be better equipped. This is not to say to get rid of middle-class people who are working in publishing at all. I am somebody wedded to the classics. I absolutely love the classics. And I had a fabulous education in classic literature. And I think I wouldn't want to get rid of um, something in preference for something else. There should just be the space and the breadth and the welcome for all sorts of writers to get published. What do you think about the, I mean, it's become almost a cliche, but this cultural appropriation idea. Yeah. I mean, you know, if you were to find out that one of your yeah. contributors was, in fact, say, Jacob Rees-Mogg, uh, <laughs> writing under a pseudonym, I mean, do you think it, do you think these stories are only working class peoples to tell, or do you think a middle class or even an upper class writer can or should, as I suppose you could say, sort of, I mean, Dickens is maybe a bad example because he became middle class, but, you know, that yes. you can write a working class story. Yeah. You know, I mean, just as a working class person can write a story about Marie Antoinette. Absolutely, yes. Could an old Etonian write a story set in a council block? I think they'd get it wrong. Should they is the question, not can they. Probably they could. Yeah, you know, if you watch enough TV or documentaries, probably you could get away with getting 80% right. An old Etonian... Jacob Rees-Mogg's version of A Tower Block in Doncaster. Could he pretend to be a working class person living Isn't there? Isn't that what writers do? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It is what writers do. And if we only wrote about what we know, we'd have some very, very boring literature. We have to make things up. We have to, all of us. Whether it or not he should write that story is a different matter. And I think he should leave it alone. Any old Etonian shouldn't be writing about that because, not, I shouldn't say any old Etonian, but there are certain stories, I, I would just say George leave Orwell. that alone. It's okay. But <laughs> he did such a good job and he did it for the right political reasons. His writing was about exposing the ills of the same way as Harriet Beecher Stowe, when she wrote Uncle Tom's Cabin, she was a white woman, she was an abolitionist, and she wrote her book, which there's loads of problems with, you know, if you, if you look at it in today's eyes. But she wrote that book to draw attention to uh, social and political evil. So the point, uh, the same as Alan Patton writing Cry the Beloved Country, they were writing to expose, not to say, oh, I think I'll just do that 
thing now. And so I think for cultural appropriation, you have to write, think about why you're writing that story. Are you the best person to write that story? Are you helping... What were you going to say? No, I was just going to say this you know, idea that the reasons you're writing something yes. matter... Yes. It's quite contentious for some people because they'd say a work of oh, art stands on its own. Absolutely. It doesn't... Yeah. You know, if you start interrogating the author's intentions and say, you know, you only should write this story yes. if you're on the side of the runaway slave or you're yes. hoping to bring yes. working-class stories into the mainstream. Yes. But, you know, if you're doing it just for fun or to make money, yes. that's about... Isn't that stepping over a quite important line? I think it's a really interesting question and very blurred, very, very blurred about intention and right and who owns stories and who owns territory. Personally, I wouldn't write, probably wouldn't write about the Jewish Holocaust because I would think that is tender sensitive territory would I get it right am I the right person to tell that story has it been done what new can I bring to it there's lots of people that do all the time and very very successfully you know I don't criticize them at all me personally I would there are certain areas for example if if I was going to write about a let's say a Spanish property broker it wouldn't bother me at all I would not think that person was either oppressed in any way. It's not sensitive territory. So I would feel quite able to inhabit that other life. But any group that had been marginalised or oppressed or had particular sensitivities around it, for example, the trans issue today, which is massively contentious... John Boyne got in massive trouble about it. He got in massive trouble about it because the trans community felt that he wasn't the right person to tell that story even though I'm quite sure a lot of them hadn't read it because it hasn't come out yet. But he he wrote a letter in the Irish Times saying what he felt about his story and putting his side. And it offended some people in the trans community because it's such a sensitive subject at the moment. Maybe in 50 years' time, when we've all got on board with what the trans issues are a bit more, it won't be such a sensitive subject. However, if you look at Catherine Stockett writing The Help, remember that? My drawing a sudden blank. Sorry. Okay, so Catherine Stockett in uh, in America, she wrote, this is probably 10 years ago, she wrote a book called The Help and it was about black maids in Mississippi oh, yes, in 1963. And she was absolutely vilified. Absolutely. You know, I don't think she recovered from, I think she, she's also being sued. She didn't recover from the amount of people saying, you should not write that story. You should not have written that story. I thought she did a really good job, by the way. But the story was slightly about white saviour. So here are these black maids. They're not getting on very well in their life. This white girl comes along and helps them out of it. A really good story, don't get me wrong, and really well written. But there were certain sensitivities in the black community. This is years after slavery. This is years after 1963. That felt that wasn't her story. There are black people telling that story. You haven't represented us right. We weren't doing that. You've put in a white person to save the black people. There's no black saviour. It's a white saviour. We're tired of that rhetoric. So even years and years and years after political sensitivities, after political things have changed, there is still areas, me personally, I wouldn't touch. Lots of people do and do really, really successfully. But are you, are you sympathetic to the objections to that book or do you take the line which someone says you can't outlaw a particular type of story? You can say it's a bad story. You can say that, you know, it's an imaginary 
yes. white saviour. And maybe there's one situation in your where there was, situation where the white was person a, was, the, was the helpful person. Yeah. And outlawing a situation, you yeah. know, any story is surely anti-artistic. I think we have got the... Should doesn't come into it. Can we write any story? Of course we can. All writers can write any story they want to. You know, you can write about a spaceship, you can write about an embryo, whatever. You can write anything. If you do and you trample on territory that is perhaps very, very sensitive, you have to be, first of all, willing to take the knock and the criticism, which can be very, very unpleasant. You, I, me personally, and I can only speak about myself as a writer and artist, that I have to be really sure that I'm doing justice to that situation. For example, I wrote about a group of people that I don't know, um, that is children in care. I've got two adopted children, but I'm not a child that's ever been in the care system. Leon was a child that had been in the care system. And I was really aware that I was taking somebody's grief and pain and turning it into entertainment, for which I was going to charge six ninety nine in paperback. It gives me a certain uh, responsibility. It gives me a certain sensitivity. It gives me a certain gut-churning feeling before it's released. Are people going to say, how dare you? You got that particular thing wrong. I was pretty certain, because having worked in the care system, that factually it was right. But it is not my story. It did not happen to me. And I had to really consider whether I was going to go there. Well, you did. And it all worked out all right. Yes. <laughs> thank goodness. Kit, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. You were listening to The Spectator's Books podcast. I very much hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, please do consider rating or reviewing us on the iTunes store. We'd love to hear from you.